BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Wednesday on Just the Truth Podcast. I'm Jenna Ellis, and as I told you yesterday, I am so excited to welcome my good friend, Matt Tinch, who is a classically trained attorney from Ohio, went to Liberty University School of Law, where I actually started law school. So that's where Matt and I met. And uh, he is a Christian. He's focused on uh, real estate in his law practice, but is also serving as vice president of uh, his local chapter of the Gideons International and also um, is just very well versed in apologetics. And of course, which is uh, the study of why we have an answer for the hope that lies within us as Christians. And I wanted to bring him a recurring on the podcast to talk about this idea of rational faith and why we as Christians have an answer for life's most basic questions, who we are, uh, where we're going, how we understand the truth of the reality to which we're presented. And this isn't just about a belief system. It's not about uh, just, I believe in God like I would believe in the tooth fairy or believe in Santa, but having a rational reason to believe in the truth and accuracy of the Bible, the explanation of the Christian worldview as a foundation to then understand objective, rational truth. So uh, Matt Tench, welcome to Just the Truth Podcast. Jenna, it's uh, beyond exciting to be here. I'm so happy to be here and talk about these things. I think it's critically important uh, for young believers and old believers alike who have maybe stagnated in the sanctification process. Uh, it's important, like First Peter 3.15 says, that we always be, be always be prepared to give an answer for the reason that uh, for the hope that we have. So it's awesome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yes. And, um, and, you know, for, for everyone who's joining this conversation, um, you know, I told you yesterday that, uh, Matt and his wife, Janelle and their family, um, you know, you guys have, have been such an encouragement to me. And I know from our friendship, um, how sincere your faith is and how this is a passion of yours to, uh, to share with others who maybe haven't heard the truth of the gospel, or like you just said, people who, um, have maybe stagnated or they haven't gone to church in the last year. I mean, it's really hard to do Zoom church and there's not a lot of accountability through that. So it's always good, uh, regardless of what stage in faith or understanding and recognition of truth that uh, we are in individually to go back and lay that foundation and either accept truth for the first time or be able to share uh, the rational reasons for faith with others. And um, so, Matt, just as kind of a background so um, people can uh, get to know you as as well as I do and um, and see what, you know, just a wonderful friend and sincere Christian you are, um, explain your passion for this particular subject area of apologetics. Well, for me, um, I guess I should say primarily, the generally speaking, the passion for apologetics uh, came for me, at an early age, when I was sent off to um, the university um, without a, you know, a, a, a foundation to uh, take on the onslaught that many young Christians take on when they get to a secular campus, where all of their professors are atheists and God is Santa Claus for old people, and and you're mocked and scorned for believing that Jesus Christ was a real person, that he really died, and that God really raised him from the dead. So it really forced me to go back, because we talked about this before, there's many ways to establish the the reality of the fact that Jesus Christ raised bodily from the grave. And and you and I know that uh, experientially. Like, we, we have experienced the process of salvation. The Holy Spirit lives within us. And so that informs the reality that we live in. And so I had that passion uh, through that knowledge early on, but I didn't have any of the historical evidence or more of the method, methodological evidence to, to back up what I was saying 
in in a, a classroom of critics. And so, for me, I mean, I heard uh, Dell Tackett talking to R.C. Sproul mm. and mm-hmm. and others talking about how you know what we're doing as as adults, as parents, is that we're sending our children off to the front of the battle without any armor at all. You know, no flak jacket, no helmet, no boots. And who would do that? Who would send their child off to war with no protection? And that's what we're doing. Yeah. And uh, and what you said about uh, being able to show with proof the historicity of the Bible and the proof of the, the historical fact of the resurrection, uh, that's where a lot of people, and even in recent conversations I've had with friends, um, you know, they they can accept, OK, you know, the Bible may teach um, good things or, you know, they kind of have a, a basic overview of, OK, I get that that Christianity is a religion. But then when they actually get to, oh, this actually means you believe in a historical event and a literal resurrection. Yeah. This isn't just a fairy tale and a story. Then at that point. Um, I think that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. And there is historical proof and evidence for that. And I think a lot of people, including Christians, aren't aware of all of the history and so um, and all of the proof. And so, um, you know, as you're describing this, the proof of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, because, you know, let's be clear, without that historical factual event, then the truth of Christianity uh, and what the biblical worldview is what the Bible teaches would would all fall apart. That is the hinge of the entire narrative and the entire um, scope of uh, the truth of the Christian um, worldview and and the understanding that this is a literal physical event. And so, um, so walk us through the um, the different methods um, and how the arguments are based in fact and logic. Sure. And, and I should add to, to what you just said there, this really isn't an option given to us as Christians, as believers. Paul himself, you know, the, the most prominent New Testament author, um, tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 14, he says this same thing. And he says, and if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. And so if, if, if Jesus Christ is not who he said he was, then this is all, you know, um, pointless. But if, but if he is who he claimed to be, then it should be the most important aspect of our life. And I, I know from listening to your prior podcast that we're talking about different worldviews. And so how do we, you know, when we go out in culture say, well, the reason why I view this or that issue is because I have a biblical worldview. Okay, well, what does that mean? It means that based upon the foundation, the cornerstone of my faith, that Jesus Christ was, is, and, and is who he claims to be in Scripture, then I can trust Scripture itself to inform me on other cultural issues. And so this isn't just something that we're taking from our parents and saying, well, this is what they taught me. So this is my view now. This is saying, no, let's look not only through our, our lens of faith, but let's look through the annals of history. How we do any kind of historical de- uh, research or anything like that and see, do we have a rational basis to, to believe that we have any right to look to Scripture uh, for, our, for our worldview? And, and that's, that's where all of this really focuses in yeah, on. Yeah, and, and that's a great description of worldview because um, a lot of people don't connect faith and worldview, and even a lot of Christians don't. You know, they say, I believe in uh, by the Bible, I believe in, in what Jesus taught, but they don't rationally connect to that to then informing their understanding of reality. I mean, it would be the same thing as, um, you know, if you look at different scientific discoveries, um, different literal evidentiary facts in our empirical world, or if you understand um, a historical event to have occurred, then you view uh, the truth of reality, understanding those facts. And that's what a worldview yeah. means. Um, it's not just yeah. a, a lens. Um, you know, Some people say it's a lens by which we view the world, but that to me is a little bit more of an opinion framework than it is a sure. truth fa- fact-based framework. So if you've heard that term um, that I know a lot of people use, it's a lens by which to view the world. 
then it's like, well, but but then um, that can be subjective. That can be um, in, inherently biased or purposefully biased. So we're talking about um, viewing facts and evidence and discovery and recognition. And um, so as we get to uh, the proof of the physical bodily re- resurrection of Jesus Christ, this isn't just a faith-based perspective or a viewpoint. This is saying there's evidence and it's truth-based. Yes. And so what we're going to do over the course of these conversations about the physical bodily resurrection is we're going to discuss, again, I should make it clear, I'm not a theologian. You know, I was trained to be an attorney. Right now I'm uh, doing real estate sales and, and my passion is for ministry because of the work God did in my life. And so whenever I have any kind of time to devote to anything extracurricular, this is where I focus because I think it's so greatly needed in in the church and throughout culture. I think today, Jenna, people are thirsting for truth in this time of rel- relativism where everything is you know, up to your emotions or how you feel from day to day. People know. This is one of the reasons why Jordan Peterson is so popular why his why his lectures on the bible and about personal responsibility i mean who would have thought that he would have sold out color you know not coliseums but these these major these stadiums these arenas for for younger people to come in and listen about you know hour two hour lecture over the bible and over personal responsibility that's because i believe just as scripture says the truth of god it, it it's written on every man's heart and we know we have just like William Lane Craig said, there are objective moral values uh, that, that we all know. You know, we know that it's wrong to abuse a child. Why? Why? You know, so that's where we're getting into this stuff. And so what we're going to start with, um, like I said, there's a couple different ways to do this. Today, we're going to talk about uh, Dr. Gary Habermas. Um, he developed what he uh, termed the minimal facts method. And so the what we run into as Christians when we try to go down this road is that people say, don't tell me Jesus raised from the dead because the Bible said it did. Because clearly those people were biased. Clearly they have a motive. So if you want to give me any kind of evidence that Jesus actually came back from the dead, you're going to have to use another method. So that's where his minimal facts argument comes into play. It looks at how we do history. Like when we look to people like Alexander the Great or Tiberius Caesar, these, these historical figures, how do we know what we know about them? I'm, nobody, I think, in, in listening range here would question the reality of Alexander the Great or Tiberius Caesar. But as we'll see as we get into this discussion, we have much better and earlier proof for this early creedal preaching that comes from the early church. So where would you like to start? Yeah, so that's a, a perfectly framed question because I was just having this conversation with a friend who, you know, went right up to the line and said, okay, I accept, um, you know, that the Bible teaches uh, the gospel. I accept that, you know, the, the premise is in order to be a Christian, you have to um, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and, you know, went through um, understanding that Christianity has um, exclusive truth. It's not a universal uh, concept. There's only one way to God the Father. That's through the Son, Jesus Christ, and went right up to the line of saying, okay, but I don't see the the uh, evidence for the resurrection because the Bible itself could be um, could be biased or these authors just uh, had this lie, you know, that they perpetuated what is the evidence? And so so let's start there by building a framework, um, I guess, Matt, of how how people can understand uh, where the evidence is and what is this minimal facts argument method. Sure. So, you know, back in the 70s, if you were to go on a college campus and talk about the empty tomb, the resurrection, the appearances or anything like that, they would have laughed you away and told you to go back to your church and talk about that stuff but not to bring it here. But within the last 30 to 40 years, something has changed. It's taken people like uh, Bart Ehrman, Raymond Brown, Michael Grant, these, these, these New Testament scholars, and have moved them away from the skepticism of these claims to saying, based upon how we do history, how we establish historical facts, we know 
that the disciples had experiences that they thought were the appearance of the risen Jesus. And, and so where we would start with this is, okay, you can't use the Bible, right? Well, if you don't use the Bible, the skeptics will. And here's why. Because we know a lot about Paul, the apostle. He is a well-known historical figure. We have a lot of information about Paul. And of the, the uh, books that he's written, there's about six or seven books that they will accept as authoritative, meaning that he was, at, he was there at that time. He was in a position to be right. And we know um, that he was a scholar, you know, con, uh, trained under Gamalier and people like that. So the, the books that they will accept, Will be Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First Thessalonians, and Philemon, which is not really helpful for this discussion. It's a non-theological one-chapter book, um, and so we know, you know, um, that First Corinthians fifteen was written around fifty-five A.D. Um, the 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 information there in First Corinthians, um, we we will see how we can get back from when Paul writes First Corinthians, because when he writes it, he he says in the first few verses, "This is the information that I received," and then he writes this to the church. And so we're going to get, you know, if we we do a timeline, we say Jesus, his crucifixion was roughly, you know, thirty to thirty-three A.D. We, we count that as ground zero, and we go to 1 Corinthians when Paul wrote this and say, when was that written? We know that it was written around 55 AD, and so that gets us, you know, uh, a few, uh, 20 um, years after, or no, yeah, 20 years after the crucifixion event, and we'll see how we can move that back into within a matter of months from the cross, and that's important. Because as we'll talk about with some of these other uh, historical figures, um, evidence in, in, in history, how we establish historical fact is sometimes based upon one eyewitness account. Right. So, and, and how even we sometimes prove things in a court of law. It can be based on an eyewitness yeah. and the credibility right. of that witness. Exactly. So First Corinthians 15 starts out, verses 1 and 2, and says, I deliver to you the gospel message. What you do with it determines your eternity, essentially. I'm paraphrasing. Verse 3 is when he comes in and said, the message I preached when I came to Corinth, I gave you what I was given. So Paul was given this message from somebody else, which means he had to get it earlier. And he's doing what any good professor does. He says, I'm passing on material to you that I was taught. And so in verses 3 through 8, Paul gives a list of appearances. You know, a lot of people are not familiar with this. They think that Jesus only appeared to the 12 disciples. But in, in verses 3 through 8 there, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives a list of appearances. Verse 5, he says, uh, Kephas, or Peter. That's uh, Peter in the Greek. Um, and then uh, he says he appeared to the 12 in that same verse. Um, then he goes on and says uh, he appeared to... 500 brethren. And what we know, like from the feeding of the 5,000, is that uh, back in that time, the Jewish culture, they would a lot of times count the, the men present. So there's a good chance there were up to 1,000 people in that 500 brethren. Um, That's a lot of witnesses. See, <laughs> it, it is. It goes on and says he came to James, James, Jesus' brother, and then to the rest of the apostles, and then Paul puts himself in their last. And so this lays out for um, the, the foundation of this discussion, who Jesus appeared to after his, his death. So we have three individuals and three groups. And so again, Paul says, I delivered to you of first importance, or first of all, that which I also received, how Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And so nowadays, no matter how far to the left or the right you are as a scholar, most New Testament scholars agree pretty unanimously that this is a, the, an early creedal tradition, meaning that this was part of the early church's preaching. This was one of their, this was one of their traditions, one of their confessions. Um, so 
how do we do history? Um, so there's several different criteria that's important to this, but we're going to talk about how it was done in, in the old apologetic and how this modern approach does it. Right. And, um, so, and I want to ask okay. you a question about, you know, so this, the, the early creedal tradition, because some of the pushback to that is to say, well, this is just, um, you know, the early church just accepted this as true. And it's just become tradition in the faith, like some kind of ritual might be or some kind of other prayer. That doesn't necessarily mean that it was fact. But I think what you're describing is saying, well, no, that the early church took this basically as their their forensic report or their their history and as something that was a um, w- was something that was based in fact, not just early church folklore, for example. Right, and and we see that when we when Paul goes in in, in Galatians, he talks about when he after his Damascus Road, Damascus Road experience, he went up to Jerusalem uh, to meet with Peter and James, and they talked together about while they were there this 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 topic, and he gets from them from first person accounts from them and relays to them what they all. And what the point of that meeting was, was, you know, Peter and James decided that they were going to stay and, and, and preach to the Jews, and Paul was going to go preach to the Gentiles. And what Paul wanted to do is he wanted to go meet with Peter and James, who were, uh, you know, firsthand account, eyewitnesses, and, and make sure that if, he, if what he saw and what he received was what they them, themselves have received, so that when they went out and preached this message, that they were all preaching the same gospel. Um, and so before we get into that, one of the old ways that they, the, the old apologetic before this method came in is that they would use critically ascertained date that essentially says the New Testament is at the right place at the right time for his, historiography. And so we talked earlier on about what, what book the, the skeptic, like Bart Ehrman, you know, these, these skeptics who are critical of the New Testament, who are not believers, these are not evangelicals, these are not conservative Christians. These are the books that they, they will accept. You know, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First, Thess- First Thessalonians, and Philemon. The old way um, is that the, the old apologetic would, would say, okay, we know that Mark was written around 70 AD. That's about plus 40 years after the the cross, Matthew, about plus 50 years, Luke, 50 up five, and then John, around 60 to 65 AD. And so these are all critically reliable dates as far as distance um, to be able to, to ascertain how far away from the crucifixion event they happened. So this is, this is, is really good evidence as far as dating things in the ancient world, because the idea is to get it as close to the source as you can. And so in the past, you, they would raise this, this apologetic, and, and the, the argument would be, well, that's too late after the event. Forty years after the cross is not something that we can rely on. Sixty to 65 years after the cross, there's too much time for them to make up stuff. So if that's the case, then how do we, how do we come back at that? And what we do is we look to people like, Alexander the Great and Tiberius Caesar. Alexander the Great, for instance, nobody doubts the, the historicity of Alexander the Great and, and his um, campaigns throughout the Middle East. He's 33 when he dies. He's privately tutored by Aristotle. He's the youngest, most brilliant military general by his time as armies conquer and move east. They take everything from Macedonia past India. The phalanx that they developed was the most devastating army ever that still studied. His, his military tactics are still studied in, in, in military colleges today. So he wipes out a lot of the armies of the Middle East. And Alexander the Great is 330 years B.C. So there was people who wrote about his life that were contemporary with him, but we don't have any of those writings. So that would that, that again is what we would want. We would want uh, people who was contemporary with him. We'd want their writings to be able to attest to the fact of his life. But the, the closest sources we have is plus three hundred and 
300 years after his death. That's the earliest source we have. Wow. Um, and a lot of people don't know that. And yet we just take everything that museums tell us about the life and history of Alexander the Great as fact. And we don't even think about it. Yes. So the best sources would be Plutarch or Arian. Plutarch was, was born 46 AD. And so they're writing these 425 to 450 years after Alexander the Great's death. So maybe, maybe Alexander the Great isn't a good example. Let's, let's use Tiberius Caesar. So this is a good example because he was on the throne in Rome when Jesus died. We know that. He dies a few years after Jesus, around 37 AD. The early writers linked Jesus to Pilate and Tiberius, and about the same number of major sources we have for Jesus and Tiberius. So again, this is a, uh, this is a better comparison. So what's the earliest source for Tiberius? Well, it's contemporary, and we have it. So that, that is really beneficial to trying to establish um, the historical accuracy of his life. It was an early general, but the problem with this is the at least useful of the four sources. So even though it's contemporary and we do have that writing from his general, it's the least useful of the four sources. The next best source, the next source period for Tiberius is Tacitus, who's the Roman historian. And this is about plus 80. 15 years later than John. So John is, is in 90 to 95, but in that's 60 to 65 years after the cross. But here we have Tacitus, who is writing 15 years later than John, plus 80. So John is 60 to 65 years away from his event, the cross. Tacitus, the best source we have for Tiberius Caesar, is plus 80 after his event he's writing about. Then we have Suetonius, a Roman historian. He's plus 85. The fourth source is Dio Cassius, a Roman historian who's 180 years after the events he's writing about. So even under this old rubric, the old way that the apologetic was handled, we, we can see that these historically ascertained dates for Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John are much better than the sources we have for the life of Tiberius Caesar. So this is a problem that you always get, though, with skeptics. Well, we can't, we can't rely on the Gospels because they include miracles in them. That's foolish. There's no way that that happened. We can't rely on these writings because they're ridiculous. They have, you know, people walking on water and, and, and people raising from the dead. And, and we know that stuff doesn't happen. And you say, oh, really? Well, so do all the Greco-Roman histories that we're referring to. In 1992, Richard Burridge, classical scholar at the University of London, wrote a book, and, and, and you might think, uh, if you're listening, in, in, in your field, a writing that maybe came about at a certain time that completely changed the industry. After this, things completely changed on how the whole industry was, was viewed. That happened here with Richard Burge's book. So what he says is that he wrote a book comparing the Gospels to the early Roman biographies. So this book, in what are the Gospels, he argues that the Gospels have all the earmarks of early Greco-Roman biographies, and the Gospels should be considered biographies themselves. And so, like I said, now as a result of this book, most modern critical New Testament scholars, the people who publish and study in this area, agree that the Gospels are indeed Greco-Roman biographies. They're the same genre. And that gets this really important. News. Yeah, that gets really important too, uh, Matt, because when skeptics are saying, well, okay, we'll, we'll take the dating um, as accurate, but then the content, we're going to dismiss that because what they're claiming is false. They're making a presumption about the facts of a historical record and then claiming it's false based on their own unbelief. And if you're a yeah. genuine skeptic, if you're someone who's critically trying to ascertain the truth of this uh, historical document and this this historical biography, then you have to first uh, say, okay, the dating is correct. And so can this be what it purports to be? And then you can go and test the claims within that. But you can't just dismiss them out of hand because it's 
claiming something that you don't want to believe or that you think is improbable. I mean, it would be like someone today uh, documenting what they saw. So let's just take an example that everybody's seen, which is, you know, Joe Biden uh, falling down, falling up rather the stairs of of Air Force One. Right. right? So let's say that somebody documented that in a couple of different publications there, you know, even a couple years after the fact, and they're referring to this. Well, if someone later doesn't want to believe that happened, so then they dismiss outright, well, okay, that's that's a few years after the fact. So this person doesn't know because they don't want to believe that that happened based on partisan politics or whatever their reason. Then they're dismissing it just because the claim within the document that purports to be a a record, a report, uh, that's what reporters are supposed to do, report facts because they don't want it to be true. And so those are the kinds of yeah. skeptics that aren't genuinely trying to ascertain the truth. And um, so I need to take a break here real quick, but um, we're talking with my good friend, Matt Tinch, who um, is a fellow attorney. And, you know, the great thing about this, Matt, is that, you know, you described that you're not a theologian um, and, you know, neither am I. But the great thing is that we are all able to go and look at the his- historicity of this, look at the fact claims, we don't have to be yeah. theologians or scholars or attorneys to find out the truth and believe genuinely in the historical fact and reality of uh, the truth of the biblical worldview and the reliability of scripture. So we're going to be right back on Just the Truth Podcast. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And welcome back to Just the Truth Podcast. I'm Jenna Ellis, and I'm talking with Matt Tinch, who is a fellow attorney uh, and good friend of mine. And we're talking about the truth of the reliability of scripture and the proof of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical event. So, uh, Matt, you were talking uh, right before the break about, um, you know, these these claims from skeptics who aren't really being honest about why they're so skeptical, because they don't like the claims within these historical documents. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and what we find out, I mean, there's been a number of studies done on this. Um, but what we tend to find out, it's, it's kind of interesting when you think about it, because of the people groups who, uh, when asked, are most angry at God, you know, just to step back from this conversation for a minute, the, the, largest, the, the largest identifiable group that's, quote unquote, angry at God are who? Atheists. Well, how, do you, how are you mad at somebody that you don't believe exists? And so what we see in, in all of these conversations, and, and it's not in every case, but more than likely, I mean, this, this, this material I'm talking about today, you know, there may be some, some lay people out there like us who, you know, have been taught the traditional, um, you know, um, scholarship through, throughout their time in, in university that it wasn't updated in the last 70 years. And so they walked away believing that the professor gave them all the information they needed, whether it's philosophy class or uh, New Testament studies or whatever, and think, no, I, I, I've been educated in this. I know that there's no evidence for it. What we know is that if, if anybody has, has the courage to go and look this stuff up, you're going to see prominent New Testament critical scholars. You know, Bart Ehrman is an agnostic leaning towards atheism. So he's, he's the most cited pro, uh, prominent modern critic. He is going to grant all of the things that we will talk about, especially on the modern approach, the minimal facts. And that's why this was developed, because Bart Ehrman tries to, and, and, and William Lake Craig points this out a lot, Bart, Bart Ehrman tries to discredit the Gospels by talking about variations in the translation. But if you, if you, and this is, this is the difference. We have a popular view and we have an academic view. The academic Bart Ehrman knows that these discrepancies that he brings up are not critical to the overall meaning of the text. It's not a material to the, the, the major message. But he uses in his popular image these little things to sow doubt in people's mind and to make it easy 
for disbelief so people don't have to wrestle with the reality of there being a God. And so, yeah, so I want to use that as an example real quick. Um, You know, that's what good defense attorneys do in court, right? They try to point out little differences between eyewitnesses to say, oh, well, and so based on those little things that maybe just, you know, where they were sitting or how they viewed or, or what part of the event they viewed, well, look, that's such, and make it to try to seem like it's such a big discrepancy when really yeah. you have to look and say, okay, but on the critical event, like, did they get the identity yeah. of the person? Did they get the event right? Where are they credible? You know, those are the things that matter. Like you said, that word material, that's a legal term to mean that it, it matters. It's not extraneous. It's not superfluous to um, to the truth of the claim that we're trying to prove. And so when we yeah. talk about those types of things, that's that's what you're talking about, is that these little differences between translation actually give it more credibility because yes. you can see that the eyewitnesses didn't all collaborate to get their story correct. Yeah. They're giving their own right. independent testimony. Right. Yeah. And, and it's funny because uh, when <laughs> William Lane Craig recounts this uh, uh, radio interview, Bart Ehrman gives with uh, a radio host. And so he's going through and doing his you know, popular uh, work on the radio and pointing out all this. Uh, well, this one says this, and this one says this one, and this has a period over here, and this one doesn't. And and so the the radio host at the end of the conversation says, okay, Bart, so what do you think the New Testament actually said when it was written? I mean, because he's thinking, well, you've sit here and tore the whole thing apart. I mean, what in the world did it even say when it was first written? And Bart Ehrman sits there, in, in kind of a confused way, says, well, pretty much what we have today. And so he knows, he recognizes, you know, Bart is a good historian. And so if, if the, the logical uh, conclusion from saying, well, they're all corrupted and you can't trust them and stuff like that is to say, well, what did they say when they were originally written if they were changed and changed and changed and changed? And then he's forced to, as a good historian, say, well, pretty much what we have today. And so this is this is the battle that we're fighting. And with a lot of Christians, too, I can tell you in my own life, one of the reasons that prohibited me from diving into this stuff earlier on is because our faith is sacred to us. You know, we know it's true. We live it. We experience it. But we're hit without, remember, we don't have any armor, armor for the battle. Or we, we haven't been prepared. And so when we enter into the war zone, we can't. We can't start a fight. You know, we're bringing a knife to a gunfight. And so we're afraid to dig into these things because we're afraid that once we dig into it, there's not going to be any evidence for our beliefs. There is no critical scholarship on it. And we're, we're going we're gonna to potentially lose something that's very sacred to us. And, and what has been the biggest lesson for me over these past several years of digging into this myself is that you don't have to protect God. You don't have to protect the Bible. God can do that on his own, and he has through, you know, scholars who have taken the time to look into these things. Um, yeah, and so. that that becomes really important because a lot of people will claim that Christians just want to defend Christianity at all costs. And even, you know, and, and I've even seen some Christians, very well-meaning, will say, you know what, you could show me the literal physical body of Jesus Christ, and I would still believe. And I'm like, well, then you're not seeking truth. If somebody showed yeah. me that, and if they showed through rational evidence that the claim that I'm believing as true is actually false, then why would I, why would I believe that anymore? So as Christians, we aren't actually defending truth in that sense. We are simply giving the evidence that, that shows the reliability on its own merit. And there's a huge distinction there because a lot of people think of this in terms of an adversarial metric, like, you know, the skeptics or the prosecutor and Christians come in as the defense attorney and we're all clashing. And it's like, no, that's not the setup. It's not adversarial. We should all be on basically the same side of saying we all want to ascertain truth. And that's the question that people, if you're listening and you're a skeptic, you have to ask yourself, do you want to genuinely know the truth? Are you actually seeking the truth of this claim? And, and what evidence would convince you? Are you willing to be convinced or are you just going to create in your own mind all of these other barriers because your life and your lifestyle would have to change if there's sufficient evidence of the proof of the reliability of the truth claims in the Bible? And that's that becomes then, you know, the critical element. And 
And so I think that's important, Matt, as, as we continue with this. You know, so many Christians, let's not get defensive over our faith. This should yeah. be something we want to share. And we want to say, you know, this. there's so much evidence. Therefore, I believe in the reliability, just like how there's so much evidence. I believe in, you know, a heliocentric, um, you know, view of the universe, because I know that, you know, the geocentric sure. model isn't true. You know, th- this is something You're that's... In- yeah, no, I know. I know you've added <laughs> me now. <laughs> so, yeah. but, but yeah, and, you know, we can, we can even laugh at that, right? Because it's been so obviously and through so much proof shown that that's not true. And yet people still want to believe false claims to, to advance their own objectives and their own goals rather than being genuine truth seekers. And that's why, yeah. you know, here on Just the Truth, we want to get to the truth. And, and that's, that's yeah. such, such an important point. Well, and, and two, two things to follow up on that. The, the one thing that I would say to the skeptic who is, you know, um, anxious about going down this path and, and potentially looking at this stuff and, and, and running the risk of believing it is that you don't have to change your life to come to Jesus. Jesus will meet you where you're at through a childlike faith. But, and this is where a lot of Christians get mixed up. We're not, I mean, it takes a childlike faith to, to get to salvation, but it, it, that, that's not where the process, the sanctification process ends. You know, if, if all God wanted us to know was that uh, God so loved the world, so he gave his only begotten son, then all we need is John 3.16. The Bible is way too long. It's way too long, right? but it's not that short. You know, the reason why we have those other books is because part, uh, other than living through eternity, you know, the justification stage after salvation, the longest part in between justification and glorification is a sanctification process. It is a process. It is us pushing towards the mark, the high calling of Jesus Christ. And so it should, and that's, that's the role of scripture. Scripture changes your life because only God's word through the Holy Spirit can do that. I can't do that with this evidence. You can't do it through uh, a persuasion. We, we, we sit and lay these foundations down, laying seeds that, that puts, puts, puts the seeds in fertile soil so that when it comes time, that it's, it's easier for those who may be skeptical to accept the reality of what scripture tells us. Yeah, and um, and I want to take one more break here, and then we'll be right back uh, with Matt Tench to wrap up this conversation and uh, talk about really the bottom line of this and why uh, skeptics at least need to be open to seeking the truth of the matter and the and the reliability of the truth claim. So we'll be right back here on Just the Truth. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to Just the Truth podcast. I'm talking with my good friend Matt Tinch on the truth of the reliability and historicity of scripture and the truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, you know, we're going to be celebrating uh, Easter Sunday in just a couple of weeks, which, of course, um, every day we celebrate the truth that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can accept that truth and find a salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And we can, though, give a rational, reasonable, historical, evidentiary uh, proof and truthful explanation for that faith and that reason to celebrate the truth. So, uh, Matt, when we're talking about um, you know, some of these skeptics and kind of you know the bottom line overview of this is that there are so many skeptics um, that will just disclaim this because they don't want to hear it. And two of um, two of the most plausible, they think, explanations, alternative explanations that they come up with. Or maybe the apostles were lying. Maybe they saw hallucinations. um, And, you know, we can't believe all of these eyewitnesses. Yeah, and I would would encourage everybody to continue to come back to this conversation as we continue to have it 
because we've really we've had we've had the chance today to get through the the old apologetic, but we would like to in a in a future segment dig into the minimal facts where we go to Galatians and we end up doing the math that says Jesus is crucified 30, 30 AD, Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus in 32 AD, Paul goes to Jerusalem in 35 AD, which is five years after the cross, at where he spent two weeks with Peter and James. And then we can see from there, through Galatians, how we can get this early evidence up into six months after the cross. And again, to review for everybody real quick, when we go back and look at ancient history, for people like Alexander the Great, Tiberius Caesar, and even the old apologetic. We're looking 80, 100, 300 years after the event, and we use these documents to rely critically on the data that we believe is true in history. And so this is the bottom line. Um, you know, the, the skeptic says, okay, all right, Bart Ehrman agrees with this. Okay, I get it. Most New Testament critical scholars will attest to the, the basic facts of, of what you've talked about here. But I just can't believe it. I mean, people don't raise from the dead. It just doesn't happen. You know, we, we can accept that as true because it's, it's just, we have to appeal, appeal to supernaturalism in order to explain something. And so, you know, what they will say is, yeah, I, I agree all of this stuff, you know, happened or we can rely on it historically. But, you know, let's say there is an empty tomb. Maybe the apostles were lying. Maybe they had mass hallucinations. Maybe Jesus had a twin brother. We get these ideas from uh, other of the later uh, gospels that we get up into the fourth century. Great, great you know, defense attorneys, right? Like just, you yeah. know, hey, let's just throw any other plausible yeah. explanation out there because yeah. the prosecution's case was so solid. We have to just have all these wild theories. Yeah, yeah, because it's a, a shadow of a doubt, you know, and so um, that's that's sadly a lot of that's all some people need. But if you're seeking after truth, if if you're going to to want to live in truth and deal with the reality of the world that you live in, you owe it to yourself to deal with the cross, because unless you do, everything is is colored by confusion, you know. So. This is where they come, and then Bart Ehrman, you can see him and, and uh, William, William Craig debating it. And, and what you can see in the, this, this debate, and, and others like it, is that there's this anger. You know, when, when William Lane Craig comes up, he's, a, he's one of the top 50 most influential philosophers in general. He comes up and gives a very, you know, clean, concise, uh, calm presentation and basically just lays everything out um, as clear as it could be. And Barnum will get up and come up behind him and say, yeah, I believe that stuff. But maybe Jesus had a twin brother. Do I think that happened? No, I don't think that happened. But it's more likely than God raising him from the dead. And so they have to come up with these wild uh, theories to explain away what we, what we know to be true historically. And the problem with that is, we have all of these sources on the side of, of the resurrection that we look through history and we can date. We say, well, this was the early creed. There was no competing theory about it. There was no other first century gospel account that contradicted this, this, uh, this account. And so if you're going to say, well, maybe he had a twin brother, then, then the response to that is, well, Where's the authority to establish that historically? You know, if that's the case, we would expect that at the time that it happened, that there would be competing theories, or if these were made up, there would be competing stories about what actually happened. And so you see this even in the gospel accounts themselves. You see where the Sanhedrin says, um, you know, tell them that the disciples paid you and uh, took the body away at night. No, no, no. You, you, uh, you was there. And the disciples took the body out in the middle of the night. And so what they don't realize is by coming up with these, these objections is that what they're admitting to is that we have an empty tomb. Mm. So in a way, it's helping the, the veracity of these claims by saying, yeah, we recognize there's an empty tomb. Because like you said earlier, 
what would have been the easiest way for the Sanhedrin and everybody else to disprove it? They would have opened the tomb up and pointed at Jesus's corpse and said, ha ha, you guys are idiots. Right. But they did. They didn't do that. They, they have to recognize historically that there was an empty tomb. Now we have to come up for, uh, with an explanation for that. And so this is where it starts, you know, going into the, the more popular atheism, the more ridiculous stuff. And, and if you watch these debates, um, most of the time, most of the arguments that you see, you know, I love Christopher Hitchens. I mean, he is one of my favorite, you know, uh, political writers. But he's, you know, probably one of the most well-spoken atheists. And if you see him debating against people like John Lennox or William Lane Craig, you see that his his method is more based on innuendo and, and insults and, and, and talking uh, about God like he's some North Korean dictator and saying, even if God exists, who would want to be subject to something like that? And, yeah, the popular so meme sort of, you know, directive yeah. and, you know, let's just insult. Let's not deal with the real argument. Yeah. So and, and that's what, you know, you know, we, we left off on this one talking about miracles. You know, what about the miracles? Again, they, they are in the Greco Roman history, uh, all except for people like Thucydides uh, um, and, and maybe even actually even Herodotus. Uh, who's the father of history, records miracles in his accounts. But there was a book by Craig Keener called Miracles. He's, got a, he's a PhD from uh, Duke. He's, uh, Duke. He's a New Testament um, scholar, and he has a minor in classics. So he, he deals in Greco-Roman scholarship. He wrote a two-volume work. It had 1,200 pages, part one and two, on contemporary miracle claims. And, and this is the way that it's outlined in the table of contents. Pre and post CAT scan, pre and post MRI, pre and post X-rays. And these are cases, these are hundreds of cases, hundreds of cases from all over the, the, the world. And, and it's, it's, it's divided between those with corroboration, those with heavy evidence. And so the main thesis that Craig Keener has in this book is don't call the New Testament nor the Greco-Roman histories naive because they record miracles. Everyone mm-hmm. in the modern world is aware of these things, except the Western academic community as they're coming along. And so this, this first part here kind of lays out the way that it was you know, historically done uh, before you get into the, just the, the meat and bones of the bare minimum facts. But when we do that, we'll see the map, Jesus crucified at 30. Paul met Jesus on Damascus Road at 32. Paul goes up to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James, 35 AD. Paul spends two weeks with them. And then we know that prior to that, they had to receive this material. And as we walk through these other accounts in Galatians uh, and so forth, we will see why people like Bart Ehrman say, we can get this historical evidence, non-contradictory, corroborating evidence from multiple sources, from authoritative texts. It doesn't mean they're inspired. It doesn't mean that they're infallible. It means that they're authoritative in the fact that they were there, they were in a position to be right, and there is no contradictory first century testimony. And we can get this, we can get this within a year after the crucifixion. And, and there's others that go further that says, no, we can even get this up to six months after the cross death. Wow. And I think for a lot of people that that revelation is amazing because they have heard um, if they've looked at any of the skeptics writings, you know, heard a different uh, false story. And so I'm really excited, uh, Matt, for these future conversations. And, you know, through this conversation today, it was reminding me that, um, you know, this is just in the one hour that we've been talking today. Um, we have just barely scratched the surface of the historicity of the yeah. Bible, all of the, um, you know, all of the things that the Bible shows as historical fact. Um, you know, people tend to think, as you said uh, so clearly, you know, well, we have we have John three sixteen, and that's it, and that's all that we. What do we need the rest of the Bible for? And a lot of Christians even think that. Then we have sort of this fortune cookie idea of um, of truth, and we need to 
get involved in a local church that is teaching through the Bible because of these conversations and because of this knowledge of what the Bible as a reliable historical record shows. And this is why church is so essential. This is why good teaching is so essential. And for those listening, I hope that this has given you at least um, an understanding of the question of the reliability of scripture and that there's more to it that you may have ever heard. And so being an honest truth seeker, um, that you will continue to listen to just the truth podcast. You'll go and listen to all these other resources. Uh, Matt, Matt, Matt mentioned, uh, William Lane Craig, he wrote the book, rational faith, um, has, you know, some great resources. John Lennox, you mentioned is one of my favorites as well. Um, C.S. Yeah. Lewis, who was an atheist and yeah. um, truthfully, genuinely sought uh, truth, uh, mere yeah. Christianity. I mean, there's so many other resources. And um, Gary Habermas, the one that developed this argument, yeah. he was an atheist leaning towards Buddhism. And this is his own research that led him to come to faith. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there and there are so many stories like that. And the Bible even says as well, truthfully, that if you will seek truth, you will find it. And that's the promise yes. that we have. And so I would encourage everyone, seek truth. And if you're already a Christian, I hope you're encouraged by this conversation to know that we have not just answers. We have the only rational explanations. We have the only consistent uh, worldview that, uh, that meets with the truth of reality, that it can explain the world in which we live, the problem of evil. I mean, some of these other conversations that Matt and I will get into um, on future podcasts, um, but Matt, thanks for joining me. And um, just as kind of a wrap up, what's um, what is your message to uh, to some of the skeptics and some of the Christians? Well, I would encourage the skeptics who are skeptical because they believe that the evidence doesn't exist. If if you want to live in truth with the knowledge of what the the actual scholars who publish in this arena are uh, uh, attesting to. Dig into the the historical evidence um, for the Christian. Um, be encouraged, and to both, to both for the skeptics who may be curious and maybe even ready to think about a relationship with Jesus Christ. We know that, as we said, Romans is a book that most critical scholarship will accept as authoritative, meaning it came from Paul. And Paul in Romans lays out our condition as sinners and, and, and why we are separated from God and what it takes to become redeemed and, 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 and grafted into the family with Jesus Christ to be joint heir with him. Um, this is Romans 323, 5, 8, 5, 12, 6, 23, 10, 9 through 10, 10 and 13. And of course, John 3:16 and 14:16. 16. I would encourage you, if you're gonna, if you if, if you have the courage to, both as a Christian, this is this is this is the roadmap for you to be able to spread the message of the gospel to people in your community, workplace, and the marketplace. And for the skeptic who is who's feeling that tug, this is where you can examine um, the scholar that we know of as Paul, who himself was not a believer. In fact. As per, in, in the early part of the church, he was tasked with the job of rooting out Christianity. He went around and killed Christians for the message. And as a result of his interaction with Jesus Christ, became one of the most sincere, ardent, and, and labored, and one of the most uh, prolific apostles that we know of. Yeah, that's so encouraging. And uh, thank you so much, Matt, for joining me today on Just the Truth podcast. And if you have um, any questions that you want to ask Matt, you can all, always reach us at justthetruth at americasvoice.news. Um, we'd be happy to answer your questions. We're going to be doing this on a regular basis um, to have Matt on the program to talk about um, some of these things because uh, this this is the truth and this is what matters. Uh, we I'll talk yeah. about politics all the time. That's important. But in analyzing politics and understanding why we can advocate for pro-life, why we can advocate for conservatism, why we have the setup that we have in the design of America, I mean, all of these things, 
we have to go back to the foundation of what is the truth. And the truth of the gospel is, of course, where we need to start so that our worldview and our understanding of reality is informed by truth. And therefore, we can make the moral arguments. We can reach a relativistic culture. We can have an answer for the hope that lies within us. So thanks, Matt, for joining me today. And we will be back tomorrow with another episode of Just the Truth.